All right, please turn to 1 Peter once again. We're in the book of 1 Peter. Last week we saw how that our great salvation comes with a great calling. The fact that we have new life in Christ means we have a new calling to live for Christ. And this is a call to be holy like God is holy. We saw that in verses 13 through 16 last week. That God is calling every single one of his people that he's redeemed out of sin to be holy like he is. And of course, God has the right to command this. He's God after all. And then again, this is why God created you. God created you to be holy like himself. Now, as difficult and demanding as this may sound, God knows that we need motivation. He knows we need motivation if we are to live holy lives and ever to carry out what he's calling us to do. And so, in these next few verses, Peter's going to give us some holy motivation for holy living. We all need holy motivation for holy living. So let's stand and read our text together out of the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And there we read, Peter says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. During the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord's help in prayer. Our Holy Father, we come to you once again because we acknowledge that we are just unable, apart from your power, apart from your your sanctifying work in our life, we are unable both to hear and to respond to your word as we ought. And so, Lord, we ask, we ask that you would give grace to your servant. Your people don't need to hear from me, but they need to hear from you. And so I pray, and Lord, we pray that you would give grace to your servant as he brings forth your word. And we ask for your grace upon every single one here listening. Lord, we are not here to waste time. Lord, we are here to hear from heaven. We need a word from you. We need you to work in our hearts and give us power and give us desire and give us the energy we need to fulfill what it is you're calling us to do. Lord, we can't do it apart from that. And so, Father, we cry out to you in the name of Jesus, expecting that you will do great and mighty things in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. The following ad once appeared in a London newspaper. Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. 
The ad was signed by Sir Ernest Shackleton, an Antarctic explorer. And amazingly, this ad drew thousands of volunteers. Thousands of men volunteering, eager to sacrifice everything for the prospect of meaningful adventure. I know that this was over 100 years ago, and this was sort of a bygone era, but nevertheless, this kind of motivation is inspiring. It ought to be inspiring us as Christians in our 21st century culture here in this country, because I think we'd have to admit that there are too few Christians today that have the same eagerness to pursue holy living. There are too few of God's people, it it is becoming at least the exception, we might say, to see Christians in our culture so eager to endure hardship and to forsake all for the sake of God. Last week we saw that God is still calling his people to be holy. And this means we are to live lives set apart from evil, set apart to the service of our God. And in light of this new calling, now Peter is dealing with motivation here. He's dealing with motivation because he knows that as long as you're a pilgrim in this world, you're going to need all the motivation you can get to live a holy life. Isn't that so true? You're not going to find motivation to obey Jesus Christ and take up your cross and follow him. You're not going to find that motivation in the public school system. You're not going to find motivation to follow Christ at your local secular university. You're certainly not going to find that at your, at least for most of us, we work a secular job. You're not going to find that at your place of occupation. And for many of us here, you're not even going to find that kind of encouragement in your very own home. It's not getting easier to be a Christian in our culture. Actually, in our society, following Jesus is feeling more and more like a uphill kind of a journey. You know what I'm saying? It seems to be getting steeper and steeper the more we want to be faithful to the truth of God because there's an increasing resistance from our culture to the truth. But now add to this the resistance we encounter from within ourselves. Whether we're talking about compulsion within us, the strong compulsion to do something we know is wrong. We know it's wrong, but there's a strong desire just to do it anyway. Or whether we're talking about this pure lack of desire within us to do something we know is right, whatever it is, our problem often isn't that we don't know what is the right thing to do. Our problem is more often that we just don't want to do what we know is right. We just want to do what we know is wrong. And so I'm thankful that the Bible deals with this pathetic lack of motivation to obey God. God knows we need a good kick in the pants every now and then. And it's my prayer that he gives that to us this morning. He's offering to you some holy motivation for holy living. God is offering you some holy motivation for holy living. And our text offers three motivations for holy living. First, Peter would want you to keep in mind motivation number one, fear of our Holy Father. You want to obey God? You need to fear God as your Holy Father. Verse 17, Peter says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Peter acknowledges we are familiar with God as our Father. That, that's no news to most of us, right? 
Consider everything that Peter's just recently said to his readers and to us by extension. This blessed salvation we have that he's described in verses 1 through 12. God has provided this blessed salvation. Even in verse 3, he describes how God has, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. We are now his children. And so Christians anywhere and everywhere, those who truly have received Jesus Christ, they may call on God as their father. And Jesus himself told us that we should address God as our father who is in heaven. But even though we are familiar with God as our father, we must fear God as God. That's Peter's point. It's like he's saying, don't ever let your close familiarity with God as your father diminish your fear for God as God. He's not your buddy. He's your creator. He's the one to whom you will give an account. Of course, Peter's not trying to spoil your affection for God. But if you address God in this familiar way as your father, he wants you to temper your familiarity with some healthy fear. Because sometimes fear is a good thing, isn't it? It's not always a bad motivation, is it? To have fear. We know this. We know that when our children are learning how to drive, we want them to have a healthy fear of the road. Because if they don't, they're going to end up killing themselves and likely somebody else. Or we want our children to have a healthy fear of certain forces of nature, like electricity. Because there are certain things that if you just touch with a certain amount of electrical current, you'll die instantly. We need a healthy fear. Fear is not always a bad motivation. It just might save your life. But the Bible teaches there's one fear that will do more than save your life. It will save your soul. This is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Proverbs 14.27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Now I know the irreligious man in our culture will say fear of God that's irrational that's a phobia that's like a disorder you've no need for that even many religious people will say your fear of God is unnecessary you don't need to fear God God is just all love God is like Santa Claus there's no need to be afraid of him but the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge the Bible says, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture tells us in Proverbs 14, 6, if you're wise, if you know what's good for you in life, you'll fear God. Do you fear the Lord? Someone is surely thinking, Pastor, I get that we must respect God, but I mean, conduct ourselves with fear toward our Father? Isn't fear too strong a term? Well, you may be God's child, you may call on him as father, but Peter gives us two truths that we must remember. He gives us these truths because he wants to ensure you properly fear God, father or not. These are two truths you should, that should motivate you with fear to live a holy life. First of all, and we've seen this from verses 15 and 16 really, God is holy. God is holy. You should be obeyed, uh, motivated to obey God knowing he is holy. Peter's just reminded us, verses 15 and 16, God is holy. That means he's completely set apart from moral evil. And he is set apart from all moral evil. Why is that a problem? Why should we fear God on account of his holiness? 
we should fear God on account of his holiness because he's holy and we are not. We are morally corrupt. This is evident in what we do and in what we say. This is evident even further and deeper in the very corrupt moral desires of our hearts. We are morally depraved. And we might console ourselves that, well, you know, this is a common problem. Everybody's a sinner. Nobody's perfect. You hear that all the time, right? Well, nobody's perfect, of course. But our problem isn't less serious just because it's common, just because it's universal. Cancer is common. Death is common. In fact, death is a universal. Sin is common. Sin is a universal. And we need to stop supposing that just because our sin problem is common, that it's not really a big deal. It really is, just as, as death is. We need to stop comparing ourselves to others. Like the scripture says, that's unwise. And we need to recognize the standard by which we will be judged is God. He's our judge. He is the holy one, the ultimate lawgiver. I know this is unpopular. <laughs> I'm not preaching this because this is popular, but this is biblical. You know, if you open the scriptures and you study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you know what you will find? Whenever any sinner comes into contact, any human being comes into contact with a manifestation of the glory of God, they're frightened. They are frightened for their life. Why is that? Well, I believe the scriptures explain. In Hebrews 10, 31, it says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we stand before God, we are not only aware of his perfection, but our imperfection, our corruption, our sins, all of it. We begin to see ourselves in the mirror as we really are, as God sees us. And that is a scary thing. Why must we conduct ourselves in fear toward our Father? Because he's holy, and we are not. As verses 15 and 16 show us. But also because, secondly, God is our judge. And this is what Peter is really bringing out here in verse 17. You should be motivated to obey God knowing he will judge your works. Peter says, this God you address as father is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And that's another reason you must conduct yourselves with fear. You might be thinking, Pastor, I thought God is going to save us according to grace. I thought we were going to be judged by our works. So what's going on here? Well, Peter's already said in verse 3 that it's according to his great mercy God causes us to be born again. So Peter's not saying here that our own works will actually save us. That would be contradicting himself. But Peter is saying, don't think that being born again by God's mercy, don't think that being saved by God's grace and not accounting works means you can live any way you want. That your life, just your lifestyle, you know, it just doesn't matter to God. You can get a free pass. Actually, anyone who thinks that he can live any way he wants, regardless, is really not a Christian at all. I mean, at least I can say this. There is nothing Christian about such an approach to life. That's anti-Christian because it's anti-biblical. The Bible teaches that God created us for good works. The Bible teaches that it really commands us to devote ourselves to good works. So if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you must devote yourself to good works. That, that is true faith in Jesus. Peter's point is just because you call God Father, and, and even if he is your Father, you must remember something. We will all give an account to God as the, our judge. Our Holy Father will one day judge each one's work, and notice he says without partiality. 
He judges impartially. That is, without favoritism. Do you hear that? God doesn't have favorites. And this is uh, interesting because you know how it is in this world. It really doesn't matter so much what you know, right? It matters who you know. If you know the right people, you'll get the job. You know the right people, you'll get a pass. You can get by. Our world has its favorites, and we may constantly ourselves show favoritism to some people over others, but God doesn't have favorites. His ways are not our ways. He will judge impartially, that is, without favoritism. It means God's not going to let the Apostle Paul slip by with any less a standard than you. He doesn't respect the Apostle Paul as the Apostle Paul any more than he respects any one of his people. But we will all give an account to how we live our life. What we have done with the truth that God has committed to us, the grace he's made available to us. And this is a frightful thing. Actually, Peter goes on to say in his letter in 1 Peter 4.17 that judgment, judgment must begin with the house of God. This will be the church. People think that judgment's just all going to be about the world, right? No, the judgment starts here. It's with the people of God who have the truth of God. God is still holy. He's still the judge of all the earth. He still takes our sin far more seriously than we do. So Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves in fear during your, the time of your stay on earth. We need a healthy fear of God. Do you fear God? Does fear for God motivate you? Are there some things in your life that you would not be doing right now if you really feared God? Maybe some things in your life you'd get busy, get serious doing if you really feared God? Something to think about. While fear should motivate you, fear is not the end-all motivation for obeying God. Peter would want you to take advantage of a second motivation. Motivation number two, love. Love to our precious Savior. You can fear God without loving him, but God ultimately wants love from you. And where does Peter say love must be our motivation here? Well, he, I believe he says it far more beautifully than explicitly, but look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Notice the first word, knowing. Actually, because I know you all love grammar, you know, this word I'll just mention is a participle. And so it's really modifying the main verb. And that is found back in verse 17. Peter's just given us a command in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear. And here in verse 18, he begins telling us how to do that. How can you conduct yourselves in fear? We ought to know this. You ought to know two truths. And these two truths not only add weight to our fear of God to take him more seriously and what he's done for us, but remembering these two truths will motivate us with love to obey God. What are are these two truths? First, you must remember your life without Christ was futile and irredeemable. You want to obey God? You want to be motivated and loved to Jesus? Just remember where you were, what you were, who you were before Christ redeems you. You know, here, Peter mentions redemption. He says, you were not redeemed with perishable things, going on to allude to their former futile lifestyle. And when we think of redemption here, we might think in our minds of like redeeming a coupon. That's typically how we would use the term. But in Peter's day, 
This idea of redemption was far more serious. It involved the the purchase of a slave out of his slavery. You remember the uh, movie, the epic film Ben-Hur? Might give you kind of a little bit of an idea of what slavery was to people in Peter's time. Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, is chained to a Roman galley. And he is condemned for the rest of his life, as it were, to row the oars. That's it. That's your life. And you go down with the ship. Futility. Hopelessness. Unless you could be redeemed. Well, here, Peter's talking about being redeemed from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. It's like he's saying, we were once chained to sin. We were once chained to the feudal way of life that we received from our forefathers who were sinners. And their forefathers were sinners who were sinners who were sinners. Going all the way back to Adam. And the only thing that could liberate us as a slave from these miserable chains to sin would be for someone to redeem the slave. Just like a Roman slave would have to be redeemed. Somebody would have to come along, have compassion, and, or some use for that slave. They would have to pay the price of redemption and set that person free. Someone had to set you free from sin. God is just. God is holy. God's not, we've just seen, going to judge impartially. Which means he's not going to bend the law for you or for anyone. So what's God going to do? How could we be redeemed? We didn't break the devil's laws. We broke God's laws. And so our sin debt that held us bound to sin is a debt we owed to God. A debt or a price of redemption had to be paid to God in order to set us free. And Peter says this then, that we were therefore irredeemable by any amount of silver or gold. There was nothing anybody could offer to set you free because God isn't about to accept anything our human economy could offer. So what has this got to do with love? Well, you notice the other side of the corn here. Peter says that you must know that your life without Christ was futile, irredeemable, but also you must remember that you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. He says, verse 19, you were not redeemed with perishable things, but verse 19, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. If you stick around in church long enough, you'll hear Christians singing about blood. And if you grow up in church, that might not strike you as odd, but some of you might be wondering, what on earth? Why on earth are these people singing about blood? I mean, of all things, why? That is an excellent question. No amount of silver or gold, Peter's saying, could redeem you out of your feudal way of life. The only price that God would accept for your freedom was a blood payment. Let me explain why this is. Last week, we saw Peter comparing Christians, or his Christian readers, to the Israelites who were redeemed from their chains out of Egypt. Remember that? He brought them to Sinai. He freed them, brought them to Sinai, and gave them a covenant, called them to be holy. And in the same way, Christians are brought out of sin, we're redeemed out of sin, and we are given a covenant, it's the new covenant, and we are called to be holy like God as well. But it's worth exploring the comparison further because before God redeemed Israel, he gave them a very important symbol of their redemption. And you can read about it in Exodus chapter 12 in your Bible. He gave them this symbol of redemption that they were to commemorate every year thereafter. It's called the Passover. And on that night... 
Before God brought his people out of Egypt, he warned them that he was going to cause his judgment to pass through the land. And to escape this judgment, all who believed God were to take a male lamb, unblemished and spotless. Same language that Peter's using here. And they were to kill that lamb, and they were to apply the blood of that lamb to their homes, applying the blood to the lintel above the door and on the side posts. And God said to his people, when I see the blood, my judgment will pass over you. You'll be spared. You will be redeemed. Well, all of the Israelites who applied the blood as God commanded, they were spared judgment. They were redeemed out of Egypt. And from Genesis to Revelation, man's redemption is continually tied to blood. Just consider all the bloody sacrifices that were offered. Have you ever thought about that? You talk to people and say, why were so many blood sacrifices necessary? Did God just delight in this? What is the point of all this blood? Scripture teaches the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. And the scripture also teaches that life is in the blood. You can't live without your blood, right? We need blood to live. And so the spilling of blood, guess what? According to the Bible, this is the graphic, the quintessential representation of judgment. Sin, the judgment of sin. Death, it's the spilling of blood. Not too long ago, I was explaining this to someone actually in and uh, th- this need for a blood atonement, how the Bible teaches that if our guilt is going to be atoned for, then there must be a blood payment. And they said, so, you know, that is just so disturbing that you Christians would believe that. But I had to agree with them. I said, yes, it's very disturbing. In fact, there are many things in reality that are just very disturbing. Death. Death is extremely disturbing. But if you read the Bible, you will find that death is merely the consequence of sin. The reason that you find death disturbing and all the suffering and the curse of sin disturbing this morning is because God in heaven finds your sin disturbing. He is disturbed at our sin, and we ought to be disturbed at it too. Hence why God chose a very disturbing, yes, very disturbing image, the spilling of blood, to show what would be necessary as a payment for sin. Now, by commanding blood to be applied to their homes on the eve of their redemption, God was tying redemption then from slavery and death and judgment with blood. And and, and this wasn't about tying redemption with the blood of some animal per se, but ultimately with the blood of the Lamb of God. It wasn't about animals dying. That was just a picture to prepare Israel, prepare us to see what God would do with his son. It's the precious blood of Christ, Peter says. That's what makes the difference. And Peter describes this lamb, the lamb of God that John the Baptist saw, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that lamb was unblemished and spotless. And he could say that because Jesus was without any moral imperfection. Jesus was holy. And so fast forward to the cross. Jesus lives a righteous life, but now he's dying this most bloody death. It's the death the Father desired because this death would the most graphically satisfy sin's penalty, a blood payment. God could then literally say to you, to me, to any who has believed on Christ, when I see the blood, when I see the blood of my son, my judgment will pass over you. Do you see it? That was the purpose of the Passover. That's the purpose of all the blood sacrifices. 
Not to kill animals. Not because God receives some satisfaction in death, but ultimately because God's law has been satisfied. The demands of the law have been satisfied in the death of the only holy man who ever lived, who is the holy son of God. So have you been redeemed? Have you applied the blood of Christ to yourself, to your own life? Are you trusting in Christ's life and death for salvation? Are you covered in blood, the precious blood of Christ? If you've never been sprinkled, like verse 2, Peter describes these people he's writing to, they are true Christians. If you've never been sprinkled like them with the blood of Jesus, then you are still under the guilt of your sin. And you need God to cover you with the blood of Christ. Putting this all together in one sense, it's like Peter's certainly adding weight to the fear he's just described. This is a good reason to fear God. Because when you look at the cross, you see God does not take sin lightly. It's so serious to him that Jesus was crucified for your sin. Wow, that's a good reason to fear God. But there's another motivation here. Isn't it obvious? God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is a motivation from love. The principle is love begets love. Let me explain. Back in the 1800s, there was an Englishman who had, after several months of prospecting in California, struck it rich with gold and on his return home, he stopped in a city in the south and, and came upon a slave auction. There was a beautiful young girl who was pushed onto the platform and the bidding began. And finally, one man's bid far outbid everyone else. And so the auctioneer called out going once, going twice. And the auctioneer stopped as this Englishman stepped forward, yelled out a price that was twice beyond the highest bid. Well, the gentleman came forward and presented the sum. And the girl walked down the platform until she was eye to eye with the Englishman and then she spat directly in his face. The man wiped his face and took the girl from uh, the laughing crowd and walked her to a storefront nearby. He entered. She waited outside. But when the man returned, he handed the girl her manumission papers and he said, here, here you are, here's your papers, you're free. And she looked at the papers and then the Englishman, she said, she said, you just bought me and now you're setting me free and he said that's why I bought you I bought you to set you free and the young girl fell on her knees with tears streaming down her face she clutched his muddy boots and she said all I want to do is serve you because you bought me to set me free love begets love when you know someone loves you so much to do something so Honestly, like genuinely selfless for you. How does that affect you? It pulls on your heart, doesn't it? If there's any decency, we respond to selfless love. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You know, it's, it's worth asking yourself, at what cost was our redemption? Peter says, it was with the precious blood of Christ. And when we think of the fact that Christ endured the agonies of hell for us, that we might be saved, that we might be set free, how can we go on refusing to obey him? To the extent that you value Jesus' sacrifice, it's to that extent you will be motivated to obey Christ. And nothing will 
motivate you to obey God like love to Christ. There's actually several true stories like this, but some years ago, an 18-year-old named Arthur Hinckley managed to lift somehow, some, some way, some, some, in some measure, a 3,000-pound tractor with his bare hands. He wasn't a weightlifter, but his friend was pinned under the tractor, was screaming for his life, and as Arthur was hearing the screams, he somehow managed to lift the tractor enough, and his friend was able to wriggle out. There's different stories like this. You could hear how scientifically we're like, how is this even possible? A miracle, perhaps? But in any case, it's love that empowers. Love truly does empower. And your love can empower you to do what others will tell you is impossible. The question is, what do you love? If you truly love Christ, your love to Christ will empower you to obey him, to serve him, to quit from sinning and doing some of the things that you know displease him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, John 14, 15. Fear and love will motivate obedience to God. But there's another motivation that's critical for obeying God, and Peter wants you to take advantage of this third motivation. Lastly, motivation number three, faith and hope in our great God. Look at verse 20. For he, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. These two verses, final verses of our text, all come down to faith and hope in God. Faith and hope are critical motivators for following Jesus. I think we could learn a lesson here from any mother that's ever endured the pains of childbirth. Because for all of her love that she has, as extremely painful as a natural childbirth can be, she needs to draw on more than just her love for her child. She needs to be able to have faith and hope in the fact that she will soon be holding her baby in her arms. And with this faith and hope, she is somehow empowered to push through the pain to the delivery and see her child through. Peter knows we must have fear of God and love to God, but the whole reason he spent the first 12 verses of this letter encouraging us about what Christ has done for us is because he wants you to have hope. He wants you to have faith and hope because he knows that will motivate you, even though it's difficult, even though difficult times are coming. It's crucial to have faith and hope in God if we are to obey him. So now in verses 20 and 21, Peter gives two realities on which to hang your faith and hope in God. First, on God's plan revealed in Christ. Look at verse 19. It says, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. We often base our faith and hope in things that are uncertain, like many will base their hope in the stock market or on a, a living a long life or being able to maintain good health or being remembered well thereafter. But according to Peter, the Christian hope is based on what God has sovereignly foreordained before the creation of the material universe. And, and this, more specifically, is that Peter is saying the Christian hope is based on the revelation, the appearing of what God planned before creation. What revelation? What appeared? This revelation was the appearing of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, 
Christ appeared in his incarnation. The Son of God appeared on earth in human flesh. And Peter says he appeared in these last times. Now, I find this fascinating because Peter's indicating here this was a space-time event. This happened in human history, in our earth. It's like someone said, if you were to run your finger across Christ's cross, you get a splinter. This is real. Do you believe that? If Jesus did not come in space-time history, we'd have no true faith and no true hope. But according to God's plan, Christ appeared. He spoke to us the words of God. He performed for us the wonderful works of God. And God revealed his salvation in Jesus Christ. He revealed this in these last times, Peter says, for the sake of you. Do you believe this? If you really believe this, this is a good ground for hope. You can hang your faith and hope on the eternal plan of God revealed in Christ. But Peter continues with a second reality that supports our faith and hope here in God in verse 20. The second reality is God's power revealed in Christ. He says, through him, that is Christ, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He's saying God not only revealed his plan of salvation in Christ, but he revealed his saving power in Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? The Father revealed this power by raising his Son from the dead. Do you have faith and hope in that? You know, if we don't believe that Christ genuinely rose again, if you say, well, you know, it didn't happen historically. Maybe it didn't happen. I'm still inspired by the story of Jesus. But do you realize if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then it means Jesus didn't actually conquer sin and death. But sin and death conquered Jesus. Which means you are still in your sins. Which means you still stand before God condemned. And Paul said, if that's the case, if Christ did not actually rise again in space-time history, he's saying we are of all men most miserable. We ought to be pitied as Christians. But of course, Paul is saying that's not the case. He's saying Christ did rise again. And since Jesus rose from the dead and has appeared, and the witnesses who saw this, he sealed their testimony with their blood because of all this, our faith is validated. Jesus' claims are validated and Jesus' claims validate our faith. So he doesn't stop with Jesus' resurrection. Peter does add that the Father then gave him glory. And I'll just mention this happened after Jesus' resurrection and it's very important. God gave Christ glory, not just by raising him up from the dead, but also and more ultimately by crowning Jesus at his ascension. No wonder Jesus could say, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, 18. This fact, Jesus' ascension, in addition to his resurrection, assures our hope. It assures our hope because we serve a living and we serve a ruling Savior. And so Peter again reminds you all this. He's reminding you of all this in verses 20 and 21 of God's plan and his power so that your faith and your hope may rest in God. Why must your faith and hope rest in God? Well, of course, you need that to motivate you for what God's calling you to do in life. So how do we have faith and hope in God? Is it because everything's working out in life? Is it because the cat's still alive and the fridge is still working and the car's still running and the old ticker's still ticking? Is, is that what gives us faith and hope in God because all of our circumstances are right and that's how we know we can have... No. Peter's saying, if you're a Christian, your faith and hope in God is not hanging on your circumstances. It's to be hanging in the plan and power of God. 
Nothing changes that. That is what we are to have our hope in. That's another motivation to live for Christ. So God's offering you some holy motivation for living a holy life. Would I be out of line to say that many Christians, many churches in our culture are lacking the right motivation? Do we see that? There are many seeker-sensitive churches that we could attend where it's all about a party. We want to draw people in. We want to motivate them for worship to do the right things. And so let's put on a comedy routine. Let's just offer people everything that they get on television for amusement. And let's amuse people. And so maybe we say, you know, Pastor, you just got to be more funnier. You just got to be, you know, more interesting than what's ever on the late night show. And that's going to draw people out. I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would, right? Or we could say, you know, we just need the worship to be more exciting than your typical pop concert. And as people, you know, they enjoy that more or just as much as their pop concert, they'll come to church. Well, sure they would. But beloved, what are we doing? We're trying to motivate people with the wrong things. This isn't God's way of motivating people to worship or motivating people to serve him. Peter knows that we need some motivation, but according to the Bible, we've got all the holy motivation we need for holy living. Fear of God. Love to God. Faith and hope in God. What does that do for you? When God lights a fire under you, you don't need the circus in church with all the theatrics and flashing lights and smoke machine to worship and to serve Christ. But you need what he's given you. Jesus Christ. Eternal salvation. The word of God. The church. That's what we need. And if you're listening and you say, well, you know, I'm struggling to overcome some temptation this morning. I'm having a hard time being motivated to give up some sin or to do what I know God's called me to do. Let me just encourage you. That's why the church is here. You need to Mention that. Mention that to another brother or sister or one of the pastors. Mention it to somebody and let, let us counsel you as God's people. We want to counsel you according to the word of God using right motivation to live the right kind of life. We all need that. But maybe you're listening and say, I don't even know. I don't even have confidence that I truly belong to Christ. I don't know I've been redeemed. If that's you, let me just say, there's nothing we desire more than to point you to where you can find and you can know you have eternal life in Jesus. There's nothing more important than that. So if that's you, please don't leave here without letting a, someone know, myself, Pastor Kevin, or someone else. We'd love to walk you through the Word of God. But let's pray.